On January 8, 2010, on the top floor of a circular open-air mansion in Costa Rica, a 39-year-old man named John Bender was found dead. He lay naked in his bed with his wife, who was very much alive. His cause of death was a single gunshot wound to the back of his head. His feeble and sickly wife, Anne, was the only witness to his death and the only one who could answer questions about how he ended up this way. But her story has authorities wondering who the real killer was. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. Today's case takes us to Costa Rica. I want to share my primary source for this article, as I quote it many times throughout this episode. Ned Zeman wrote an article called The Tale of John and Ann Bender and Their Quest for Paradise for Outside Online. He did an excellent job researching this case. The victim, John Bender, was described by most people who knew him as brilliant. A prodigy of sorts. He was the oldest of two boys born to Margie and Paul Bender. John's father was a noted legal scholar who held prominent posts in the Clinton administration's Justice Department and at two major law schools. Penn State and Arizona State. John's doting mother said that at a very young age, he astounded people with his intelligence. She said that when she took her son's grocery shopping, instead of sneaking items into the cart and hiding in the clothing displays like my kids would do, her son John would be the one figuring out the price per ounce. In kindergarten, he would be able to tell her if she could get a better price if she bought by the pound. John's father said that John could use more advanced vocabulary than children his own age as well. Strangely, he didn't speak early, like some gifted children do, but when he did decide to speak, he spoke with complete sentences. He had a tendency not to do something until he was sure he could do it perfectly. He even taught himself to read, but didn't let anyone know he could do it until kindergarten. He didn't want his parents to know he could read, because then they would stop reading to him. I don't know about you, but my whole life I wished that I clearly excelled at something so that I would know what to do with my life. But, like most of us, I've just muddled on through, hoping for the best. Unlike me, John seemed to have a clear path. He excelled at math. He was so good at it that he would sometimes lose his temper, becoming frustrated when people weren't able to answer his questions. He demanded a lot from people, but even more from himself. Because of this, when he failed, he would completely melt down. I imagine that being told you are gifted and brilliant sets expectations to exceed at everything. He was very hard on himself when he didn't meet his own or other people's expectations. Maybe that's part of the reason he didn't really like people very much. His mother recalled a time in his early teens when he asked her if it was okay if he didn't have a birthday party. He was offered a place at Harvard University, but turned it down because he didn't enjoy the interview. Instead of Harvard, he attended school at Penn State and was on track to a career in physics. He went to work for a government-sponsored facility in Northern California. They worked with high-tech weapons. He quickly learned during his time there that most of his job opportunities in physics would involve helping the government figure out new ways to kill people. That wasn't something he wanted to be a part of. He then spent a day visiting with a friend at the Philadelphia Stock Exchange, where he discovered options trading. He figured out that he could win or lose, based completely on his math talents, and his future was decided. He was, as you're probably guessing, extremely talented at trading, and by the age of 30, he'd made millions, and was on track to make billions. 
Not only was John smart and wealthy, he was also very good-looking. He had even done some modeling in his twenties. John was built like a football player at 6'3 and 250 pounds. When the other traders first met John, they didn't know what to make of him. They thought he was weird because he wore scrubs to the stock market trading floor every day. Sometimes he would even wear the same pair over and over. The other traders described him as being socially anxious, a quiet listener who stayed in the background, but it wasn't long before they were turning to him for advice. A few close friends he made on the trading floor would learn that he wore the scrubs intentionally so that other people would think he was an idiot. He wanted other traders to work with him and thought this would be an advantage. From 1992 to 1996, John's returns were through the roof. When he reached the age of 32, he was on pace to become a billionaire by the age of 40. Anne was tiny compared to John. She was only 5'3". She was 28 when they met in 1998. She was a beautiful, dark-haired, and dark-eyed young woman. Anne was born in Rio de Janeiro. Her father was an executive at Chase Manhattan, and her youth was spent in private schools and on beautiful beaches. Her family moved from Rio to Lisbon, then to London. She ended up in New York, where she earned a degree from Ithaca College. Anne was self-aware and would openly tell friends that her mood swings and her diagnosed bipolar disorder ruled her existence. She'd openly expressed that she was a bit unstable, and moving to Virginia after college was something she did in a manic moment. When she arrived there, she said she was scared, isolated, and frail. She was introduced to John by an ex-girlfriend, who surprisingly still lived with him on a 100-acre farm located in the countryside in Charlottesville, Virginia. He bought it to escape the hustle and bustle of the city when he needed to. According to Anne's mother, John was exactly the kind of man Anne was drawn to. She'd always liked strong men, both physically and mentally. They made her feel safe. When John met Anne at his farm for the first time, the first thing he noticed about her was that her hands trembled. He asked her if she needed a glass of water, but Anne, in her straightforward manner, said, No, I've just taken an enormous dose of lithium. She then explained to him that she was severely bipolar, and if she acted strangely, that was why. John responded to her immediately and volunteered that manic depression had colored his life, too. When John was up, he could work like a madman and come up with amazing plans and ideas. He also had an obsessive-compulsive disorder, so sometimes he'd put in 20-plus-hour workdays. Anne didn't experience the highs, but she did experience what she described as some low lows. They discussed this and many more commonalities on their first day together. They discussed their families and difficulties within their relationships but they also talked about how their parents had encouraged their children's passions for things like travel and animals. John told Anne that as a child he preferred the company of animals and that as an adult he kept dozens of cats at his farm. When people asked why, he'd respond that it was because they didn't talk. The couple spoke of their dreams and what they wanted their future to be like. John told Anne that once he'd made enough money he planned to leave trading and he would buy a bigger farm. He told her he'd already been looking in locations like Costa Rica and Brazil. She responded that she'd already been to Brazil. Maybe that comment solidified their future plans together. John asked Anne to marry him three weeks later, and she said yes. Later that same year, 
they left the U.S. and traveled to La Florida de Beru in Costa Rica. The little town sits 2,200 feet above the Pacific Ocean on the southwest coast. In 1998, there was an estimated 100 people living in the sparsely populated and underdeveloped area. Most of the people who lived there lived without electricity and lived in ramshackle farms or tiny cabins that you could only reach with dirt roads, and they turned into mud when it rained. It was a wilderness. The newlyweds lived in a rainforest filled with hundreds of square miles of jungle and jungle animals. The land remained impervious to most of the gringo land grabbers who enjoyed buying property in northern Costa Rica. Even the Costa Ricans themselves didn't buy land near La Florida de Beru. This made it an ideal place for John and Ann Bender. They wanted to build an animal sanctuary and a home where they could live far away from most people. The Costa Ricans couldn't believe their eyes when two rich Yankee gringos spent $10 million for 5,000 acres, or about nine miles worth of land in the middle of the jungle. The property had been composed of several small farms that produced coffee and cattle. The biggest problem for the benders was that in order to build in their chosen location, they had to build roads first. How else could they get the materials needed to build a home? John spared no expense. He thought this area was perfect. Over the next four years, with the help of hundreds of newly employed and newly housed locals, a large compound was built. The homestead consisted of four separate homes. The main house was surrounded by a moat and pools. It even had a helicopter pad. The property was guarded by a staff of rangers who were given the task of chasing off poachers. Let me tell you about the main house. It was large circular, and completely open to the elements. The wildlife would come and go, including birds, rats, snakes, and more. The interior of the house took up 8,000 square feet, if you included the porches, the sculpture garden, the waterfall, the reflecting pool, and other outdoor features. It was much closer to 120,000 square feet. John's goal was to make it as ecologically responsible as possible. They made their home environmentally friendly and reforested the small areas that were used for farming. They operated their property as an animal refuge. It was the region's only haven for endangered, abandoned, and injured animals. The couple would hire vets to come in and treat the animals that were brought onto their property. The preserve turned into a haven for parrots, sloths, and monkeys. The couple were surrounded by the sounds of animals, and rarely was there a human voice to be heard, besides each other's and their small staff. Their bedroom took up the entire fourth floor. The only thing that stood between John and Anne's bed and the outdoors were mechanized storm doors. They were kind of like garage doors, and they could open and close if there was wind or rain. When they were open, the breeze blew, unfettered, through the room. The benders cooked, cleaned, slept, and even bathed, basically, outdoors. They spent four years building their dream home, an animal rescue, with an ease that most people would envy. Their money and plenty of local help smoothed the path for them, but not everyone in the area was happy to have these millionaire gringos become part of the neighborhood. 
Some locals were upset that they weren't invited to earn money by being hired to work at the refuge. It was the best place to work and the highest-paying job around. Poachers were upset because the land that they had been free to hunt in the past now had armed guards preventing them from hunting. There was some hostility locally, but the worst threats were coming from the U.S. One day in early 2001, the couple were driving on quiet country roads making their way towards the nearest town to buy some seeds when a car stopped and blocked their way. Men jumped out and held guns to John's head, forcing him out of the truck. Without explanation, they tried to force him into their car. During this process, they fired two warning shots, one of which hit the ground near John's feet. Anne screamed in fright. The men then identified themselves as plainclothes policemen. They arrested John, and a few hours later at the local police station, a man came up to John handing him a summons, saying, John Bender, you've been served. The summons was in regard to a legal battle that John was engaged in back in New York. A man named Joel Silverman said that he and John were partners, and they'd had a verbal agreement that Joel would get a 25% cut of the value of John's company named Ar- Amber Arbitrage. By this time, the value of the company was worth more than $500 million. Joel Silverman made accusations that John had run, taking all the money, and that he'd hidden it in foreign tax shelters so Joel and the U.S. government couldn't collect what they were due. In a way, this was true because John gave up his U.S. citizenship when he moved to Costa Rica, and he'd taken the money with him, but he said he wasn't necessarily hiding it. These unpleasantries made John and Anne feel less than welcome in Costa Rica. Their security expert told them that they should leave, which they did for about three months, but then when they returned, they brought more security guards, ones with paramilitary training. Even with this extra security, they still didn't feel secure. Anne was scared. Her unease brought on a cycle of manic depression. Her mental state was taking a dive. The sadness and stress she may have felt manifested in her physically as well. She ended up having to have an emergency hysterectomy. The Bender's trouble didn't end. In 2002, guards exchanged gunfire with an armed intruder. The intruder fled, but this brought even more stress and fear into Anne's life. She crashed, and because of this, John did too. He felt like he couldn't take care of her properly, and this felt like a failure to him. As I mentioned earlier, when he felt like he failed, he would become depressed. The couple became paranoid and began fortifying their home with gates and weapons. Once again, they decided they needed a break away from Costa Rica, so they left and went to New Zealand for three and a half months. They'd put so much money and effort and love into their home, they didn't want to give it up. They were advised to cut their losses and move away, but they stuck with their plans, and by 2008, ten years after they got married, their legal battles had been settled. By this time, they had invested nearly $90 million in Costa Rica. With the advice of their local lawyer, they had put this money into a trust, which promised them several benefits the first of which included sheltering their money. The second was that having their money in the trust protected John and Anne from claims against their personal assets, including the animal sanctuary and their home. Technically, they weren't really in charge of the trust anymore. Instead, they lay that responsibility on their lawyer, a local attorney that John had come to respect. His name was Juan de Dios Alvarez. 
If something happened to John and Anne, all that money would be the lawyer's responsibility to dole out. In a place that would be considered paradise by most of us, life continued for the couple with lots of mental ups and downs over the next two years. Anne seemed to have increasingly frequent, longer-lasting dark periods, and during these times John would do whatever he could to make her feel better. An example would be that Anne claimed to be cheered by the beauty of stained glass and the colorful way the light shined through it. She and John reportedly collected over 400 Tiffany lamps, most of which growed beautifully around the perimeter of their circular indoor-outdoor bedroom. A neighbor named Paul Meyer, who was an American expatriate living on a small tree farm near the animal sanctuary, he said that some nights when he drove around the area he'd be able to catch a nice view of the Bender home. He said most of the home is kept dark at night, except for the top floor. It would be lit up by hundreds of glowing lamps. In 2010, Anne's health would take a turn for the worse. Not only was she dealing with her bipolar disorder and increasingly dark moods, she had contracted Lyme disease. She became so weak from the Lyme disease that she could barely walk. John would take her to various doctors and specialists in San Jose, but nothing seemed to help. He researched endlessly trying to find a cure for her. He became manic about this and worked at it day and night. He'd try several different treatments, but again, none of them seemed to work. She was very submissive to his experimentation on her. She was poked and prodded with needles and injections very regularly. People who had seen the couple during this time said they'd see John carrying her from place to place around the house. She seemed to be withering away. John's failure to help Anne darkened his mood. Now we have two deeply depressed people, isolated from all their friends and family and spiraling downward, seemingly unable to help themselves or each other. All of this information brings us to the night of January 7, 2010. John and Anne spent the evening as they normally did. They prepared dinner together and then moved to one of their outdoor verandas where they would sit and eat. They gazed over their jungle property and were able to see all the way to the ocean. At sunset, they'd play Fallout 3. John played the video game for hours every day. After two or three hours of playing, he decided he was finally ready for bed. Anne reportedly sighed with relief, grateful to have gotten through another day. They headed to their bedroom. Anne's narrative is the only one we have to go by. She said John was talking, and she was listening, but with only half an ear because she was exhausted. She was laying in bed, beginning to fade out and go to sleep, while he finished his nightly bedtime routine. She vaguely heard him say something like, You don't know how it feels to wake up with your spouse half-dead next to you. She sleepily opened her eyes and saw that John was holding a gun. It was a handgun and he was holding in his hands as he was laying back on the pillows. The gun was pointed at his face as he continued to speak. Anne said as soon as she saw the gun, she was stunned. Her immediate reaction was to sit up on her knees and try to grab it. The gun was loaded and cocked. She reached for the gun, and when she put her hands on it, it slipped through her hands and went off. John was shot in the head. Anne said she ran around to John's side of the bed and watched as blood dripped to the floor. Her next move was to pick up a radio and call for help. She was in shock and said her adrenaline was pumping because she was up and running around, 
This was something she hadn't been able to do recently. In her panic, she did four laps around the bed while waiting for someone to come up. She knew it was too late for John because she heard his last breath and a death rattle. At 12.15, one of the guards from the security team reportedly heard a gunshot echo from the house and then heard Anne call for help. Within five minutes, one of the guards was up in the room beside Anne. He found her kneeling, splattered in blood, and stroking her husband's hand. On the floor near her lay the gun. The guard took Anne downstairs, where she took a tranquilizer, sat down at her laptop, and emailed her parents. She then called her brother. Her first words to him were, He finally did it. Anne would describe the death scene as chaotic, with police officers gawking, taking pictures, and sending them to friends. She said they were stealing things from the house, like sunglasses and electronics. They were rude to her, laughing and joking with each other. There would be some photos from the crime scene, which do show quite a crowd at the home. The police officers on the scene disagreed, saying that everything was done by the book and professionally. By 11 a.m. the following morning, Anne was still being held by police. She gave investigators a witness statement and called her psychiatrist in San Jose. She told the therapist that she needed to be admitted because John had just shot himself. That night, at the hospital, her therapist and attending physician would describe Anne as being thin, frail, and weak. They said she didn't have the strength to hold up a cup of coffee. At this time, she was only about 80 pounds. She had a blood clot near her heart that required the installation of a permanent stint. Her skin was covered with open boils, welts, and infections, many of which were festering sores that began as needle marks from several different injections and concoctions that John had been giving her. Her therapist said she was literally on death's doorstep. She was blank and had no recollection of what was going on and was basically unable to fathom what was going to happen tomorrow. She knew why she was in the hospital and that her husband had died, but her emotional state seemed blank. She spent three months in the hospital, in the same state, but during the third month reality seemed to strike. She found out that she was a suspect in her husband's death. The investigating officers believed she killed John. Anne spent six months total in the hospital, and once out, she didn't want to return home. It wouldn't be a comfort to her. The police had confiscated nearly all of their belongings. She didn't have much of anything there to return to, so instead she rented a small apartment in town. When she met with her appointed lawyers, they reassured her that she wouldn't be charged because of her mental incapacity, but her lawyers did not claim that she was innocent. This scared her, and so she turned to Juan Alvarez, the lawyer in charge of all the money in their trust. He had hired the defense lawyers for her. He reassured her that everything was fine, but that only lasted until August of 2011, when Anne was charged with first-degree murder. The prosecution believed that her motive was greed in the form of gemstones. During the market crash of 2008, John and Anne went on a spending spree and bought millions of dollars worth of gems and jewels. The total amount was estimated about $20 million. Police found more than 3,000 gems laying all over the bedroom and in the home. Some were in displays, but some just lay out on counters, and others were stuck into bags and backpacks in the Bender home. 
The prosecution believed that Anne wanted those gems, and she wanted John dead, so she could spend the money however she wanted to. They also believed the gems were brought into the country illegally, which meant that no duty was paid. Anne would have to show proof of purchase and all paperwork pertaining to her ownership. When Anne was charged with murder, her primary lawyer seemed to turn his back on her. Since he was in charge of her trust, he was in charge of doling out her money. He began to restrict the flow of money both to Anne and to the animal sanctuary. Security at the home was cut back and poachers returned. The lawyer justified his actions by pointing to a postnuptial agreement that John and Anne had signed prior to setting up their trust. The lawyer said that Anne had waived her right to John's property, so technically the lawyer controlled everything on behalf of the trust. Anne, however, believed that the postnuptial agreement was deemed invalid once the trust was created. Anne was floating in Shit Creek without a paddle, and the flood was only beginning. Juan Alvarez, the lawyer in charge of her trust, was found to be spending her money for his own benefit, and if that wasn't enough, she would soon be investigated for allegedly smuggling those gems into Costa Rica. She didn't trust her current lawyers, but she got a bit of a break when she had a chance encounter with an attorney named Fabio Ocantrio. He had just quit working at the biggest criminal defense firm in San Jose and was looking to start his own practice. He was willing to take on her case, but he had to ask her if ever, at any point, she confessed to shooting John. Her response was no. He told her to plead not guilty and began working on her defense. The prosecuting lawyer said that within 72 hours of the shooting, he was reviewing forensic and police reports that cast doubt on her story. One week after her death, police had sufficient evidence to consider John's death not to be a suicide, but instead to be a murder. They believed the crime scene had been staged. More so, they believed that John had been asleep when he was shot. Both the gun and spent shell casings were found in places that were incriminating. Gunshot residue wasn't found on John's hands. Worst of all was a question that could not be answered satisfactorily, and that question was how and why would a suicidal man shoot himself in the back of the head? The entry wound was located on the right side of the back of John's head. John was left-handed, but Anne slept on his right side. Anne refuted the story and the idea that the jewels were her motive. She said why would she leave them laying around on counters and out in the open if she planned to kill her husband and run away with them? For three years, she and her lawyer planned for her defense, and the prosecution planned their strategy. The trial began on January 14, 2013. Several friends and family members of Anne and John were there to support her. Anne still appeared weak and frail. She leaned on a cane as she walked into the courtroom. Her lawyer began by stating that a person doesn't just kill their husband because today they're feeling bad. There was no motivation for Anne to kill John, and with no motive, there was no murder. Anne was put on the stand where she spent over an hour describing her life and her marriage. She said that in the months prior to his death, John had talked constantly of suicide. She said that two months before he died, she'd stopped him from killing himself by jumping off their open-air elevator. 
She explained that John said he didn't feel like he was a good person because he couldn't care for her. He said he was tired of having a hard life, and with everything he was facing, he was scared he would hurt somebody, maybe even her, and that she would be safer without him. Her defense team shared a letter that John had written to a friend. It told of his desire to commit suicide. Family members on both John's side of the family and Anne's side came to her defense, saying that they knew about John's suicidal urges, which had always been spurred by his inability to handle failure. Anne portrayed herself as alone and isolated except for her defense team. This wasn't necessarily true. She had actually met a man over the three years since her husband died. Her boyfriend was named Greg, and he was a bodybuilder, big and burly, just like John had been. He had been a personal trainer and was an entrepreneur. As the trial continued, a pathologist named Dr. Gretchen Flores was brought to the stand. She had examined John's body after the shooting. She determined that John couldn't have fired the fatal gunshot with his left hand. The defense explained that Anne had pulled John's hand toward the right side of his head, which was when the gun was discharged. Let's think about this for a minute. If someone was laying in bed contemplating suicide and holding the gun, pointing towards their face, would they be holding it with one hand or two? If with two, how would they hold the gun? Probably straight out in front of their face. If with one, they would probably use their dominant hand only. John's dominant hand was his left, but Anne slept on his right. If someone tried to grab the gun, wouldn't both parties be looking directly at the gun? John was shot in the back of his head, which means he would have looked away from the gun, almost in the same direction as the gun was pointing. So this scenario does seem pretty suspicious. On the last day of testimony, the prosecution brought in the experts. The first was an investigator for Costa Rica's top federal forensic unit. He said when they analyzed the photos, the story told itself. They showed the pictures to the people in the courtroom. Anne couldn't even look at the pictures, and one of John's friends nearly passed out. The picture showed John laying in the left side of his bed. He was nude and blood-stained around his head. His head was tilted to the left, and in the back of his head on the right was the fatal gunshot wound. His left hand dangled off the left side of the bed. Underneath his left arm was a pool of blood dripping down the side of the mattress. Beside the pool of the blood, on the floor, was John's gun. In other words, the gun was on the wrong side, opposite of the wound which would have caused instant death. It could have been carried there by Anne. They also showed images of the bullet casing, which lay beside Anne's side of the room, not John's which would indicate it was shot from Anne's side of the bed, which makes sense from her story. Gretchen Flores, the pathologist, was brought back to the stand. She believed the blood patterns on and around John's body were not consistent with a self-inflicted gunshot. The same went for the positioning of his body. She believed that his body's positioning showed that he didn't struggle and was more consistent with what she believed to be a body at rest. In other words, she believed he was sleeping when he was shot. He had earplugs in his ears, 
and if he had shot himself, his body wouldn't have landed in the position it was in. His arm would have fallen to the side on which he had shot himself. If he shot himself with his right hand, it would have been impossible to land in the position he was found. In the closing arguments, the prosecution stated that Anne had the mental capability to turn the lights on and call for help. She was physically able to walk and unlock the elevator, allowing the guards to come upstairs. She was able to move downstairs, turn on the computer, and send emails after his death. All of these things made her capable of pulling the trigger. She could have been able to kill him, wash her hands, and manipulate the crime scene as needed. Her clothes had gunpowder on them. John's didn't. The prosecution asked for 25 years in prison. The defense came back saying there wasn't a single piece of evidence with which they could conclude with 100% certainty that Anne killed John. The defense lawyer said that there was ample evidence that both the crime scene and the body had been disturbed during the chaos following John's death. The crime scene photos were taken hours after investigators first found John's body. The crime scene was chaotic, with many people on site, and the reason why her clothes had gunpowder was because she was laying right next to John when the gun went off. They also claimed that John was ambidextrous when it came to using his weapons. His security guard had seen John practicing with both hands. Anne spoke for herself, saying, I'm innocent. I didn't kill John. Since this trial, this is the first time in three years that I felt like I have rights. It's been three years of hell, and I feel listened to and protected by the justice system, and I would like to thank you. When the court recommenced to hear the verdict, spectators filled the lobby, and lines of people led out into the street. The judges unanimously decided that Anne would be acquitted. When asked to expand on the decision, the primary judge said, We found it possible that the defendant could have killed her husband, but it was also possible it could have been suicide. Anne and her team celebrated, hugging each other and planning to get the heck out of town. Anne believed that she was free and clear, but soon news came that the jewel smuggling case was going active, and prosecutors were investigating the possibility that her trial was influenced by a business deal between her attorney and one of the judges who had acquitted her. Her lead attorney had notarized the sale of a parcel of her land to none other than the head judge on the case. Her attorney claimed no wrongdoing in the transaction. Even worse news came when the prosecutors announced that they would appeal her acquittal. In Costa Rica, prosecutors can complain to a higher court, which can either dismiss the appeal or get a new trial. It rarely happens, but in this case, they ordered a new trial. Anne wasn't allowed to leave the country until the appeal played out. This would take another six months to a year. There is no double jeopardy in Costa Rica. The Superior Criminal Court ruled that the first trial incorrectly reviewed evidence and alleged inconsistencies in her testimony. Her second trial began in a similar way as the first. She leaned on a cane as she walked with difficulty into the courtroom. The prosecuting attorney told the court that the state had irrefutable evidence that Anne had killed her husband in his sleep. He began to build a picture of obsession and excess in the jungle. Once again, they argued that John couldn't have shot himself, where he did, with his left hand, and his body's position didn't match a suicide. 
the story didn't really change much, and the irrefutable evidence wasn't much more than what was originally presented. But this time, the new judges found her guilty. She was placed in jail, where she immediately planned for another appeal. Her boyfriend Greg would stand by her. He would bring her meals to the prison every day, as well as medication and news from the outside. In November of 2014, Anne lost Greg, too. He died in his sleep, with his dog by his side. His cause of death was suspected to be a heart attack, or maybe asthma. There was no foul play. When Anne went on trial for the third time in 2014, she brought in her own experts. This time she spoke English and Spanish when she told her story. Her experts told the judges that it was possible that John could have shot himself. They placed doubt on the pathologist who had studied John's body and the photographs from the crime scene. They also placed doubt on her motive, mainly that she didn't appear to have one. Why would she kill the person who cared for her? He gave her everything she wanted. Perhaps the entire trial was just a way for Costa Rica's judges and lawyers to make money. Over a period of six years and three murder trials, she was finally acquitted for a second time. But her relationship with Costa Rica was not over. She still had to try to recover the money from her crooked lawyer. He had spent her money on racing horses and lavish properties for himself. She also had a hard time collecting her gems. The Costa Rican government didn't want to return them without a fight. In 2016, Anne Patton Bender was back in the United States. She still claimed multi-million dollars of assets in Costa Rica, including the wildlife preserve and her mountaintop home, as well as her gems. In fact, nearly all the items in her home were confiscated by the government. Many of those things she'll never see again. Her smuggling charges were eventually dismissed, and custody of her jewels were turned over to the customs office so they could collect taxes on them. According to the prosecutor's office, the unpaid taxes totaled over $1.5 million. She paid those and was able to recover most of her jewels. Maybe this won't surprise you, but it surely surprised me, because on July 23, 2017, a fourth trial was ordered to be held with a fresh trio of judges. They intended to overturn Anne's previous acquittal from September 2015. That is, if they could bring Anne back from the United States to stand trial. Her fourth in seven years. This seems to be highly unlikely. The new wrinkle in the case was revealed to be that the former head of John's security team had been arrested for drug smuggling. He was caught with cocaine. Investigators believed he may have been bribed to help cover up John's death. The Bender property, as far as I can tell, is still for sale. The price is $25 million, a fraction of the money that the couple had invested into Costa Rica. You can watch a YouTube video showing the beauty of her old home in a real estate ad. I'll put a link to it in the show description. If you're considering buying the home, please consider supporting my podcast. There's a link to the show description if you'd like to contribute or if anyone else wants to contribute for that matter. Like I said, the link is in the show description. That's also where you'll find links to my social media. I have a quick personal story I'd like to share. This last month has been crazy busy, 
we sailed our boat back from the U.S., back to the U.S., rather, from the Bahamas. We unloaded it, sold it, and moved on to land. The sales process went much more quickly than we thought it would, and the most interesting part was that we were offered a trade for our boat. It was a small home in Costa Rica. Sadly, we had to turn it down because we need to return to paying jobs and land life. That being said, today's podcast is being recorded in an RV. You should be getting regular episodes coming your way again. I have a few great ones up my sleeve, but I'd love to hear from you. So please send me your case suggestions or even a location you'd like to hear a case from. It could lead to some interesting episodes. You can reach me at twistedtravelandtruecrime at gmail.com or on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. I have a special thank you for Tot CC, Kenneth W., and those of you who reached out wondering why you hadn't heard an episode recently. It made me feel missed, so thank you so much for your concern and your support. I'd also like to thank Cine330, who says... I'm going to give you five stars, lots of international variety. She says, I have enjoyed all your episodes, Sandy. Thank you so much for your interesting topics each week. I love how you cover stories from many different countries. Thank you so much. And she is from Australia. Thank you very much. I appreciate your reviews, all of you. I appreciate your five-star ratings, and I appreciate it when you share the podcast with a friend. We're growing, and it's awesome. Thank you all so much for listening, and as always, I'd like to wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.